Shrinkwrap Radio number 853, evolutionary psychologist Michael Mills, Ph.D., on the environmental crisis. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Michael Mills, PhD, an evolutionary psychologist working with UK documentary film company Slackjaw. He has helped to create the documentary film Ticket to Ride, Society, Morality, and Evolution. We'll be discussing this thought-provoking film and his role in bringing it to the world. Now, here's the interview. Evolutionary psychologist Dr. Michael Mills, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Hi, thank you, David. Happy to be here. Well, it's really good to have you here. I was referred to you by one of your partners in a documentary film titled Ticket to Ride, Society, Morality, and Evolution. Maybe you can tell our listeners something about that film and its evolution. Uh, yeah, um, I'm actually not too certain how they came in contact with me, but the uh, producer was interested in the topic of evolutionary psychology, and I guess came across some of my writing, uh, maybe in Psychology Today or oh, uh, previous podcasts. And uh, I think he was looking for a reason to uh, come out to California. Uh, <laughs> did he? And, and uh, yeah, he did. And to, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a tax write off there, but it was an enjoyable uh, conversation with him. Yeah. So I, I thought that I know that you're uh, you're a voiceover narrator in the film, and you do a lot of the very significant narration. I thought you might be. I thought the guy had suggested that you were one of the producers. No, no, I was not a <laughs> producer, um, and I didn't do any voiceovers. Actually, uh, he interviewed me, and. Uh, and then took the audio and, and put it as a voiceover for some of the, uh, oh, the images. They, they spliced that in. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. just to let folks know what this is like, this this is there's a film, uh, a video track, let's say, with uh, various film clips and so on, kind of referring to uh, the evolution of society, I guess we would say. And then... They've cut in. They've done some some uh, narration. Also, there's another narrator on there, and then there's your narration. Now, the name of the production company is Slackjaw. Do you know right. how that? Do you know how that came about? Actually, I I, I don't. Um, I do know that they have several documentary films that they've produced, and this oh, okay. is just uh, one of them among among several. Well, what I get what I get from that name is, I think maybe they're they're seeking to do jaw dropping content. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Richard Heap is the uh, the producer and the interviewer on that film, and uh, he's done other films on um, climate change uh, and several other topics. So uh, if you go to Slackjaw, I believe um, dot com. Uh, if anyone's interested, they can check out the other films that are available. Uh, that's a good suggestion. And and uh, towards the end of our conversation, I will uh, tell them how they can find the film we're talking about on Amazon. And uh, they can yeah. rent it for the hefty sum of, I think it's 
a dollar ninety nine. Yeah, <laughs> which, would, yeah. which would be cheaper than going to the movie theater. And, oh uh, yeah, and paying for it there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the. Uh, I don't think I can expect a lot of monetary compensation, but I am now listed in the uh, international movie database as the star right. of the film. Uh, all so right. I'm, I'm going to be looking for my SAG, uh, yeah. you know, contract pretty soon here. Well, you're on your way up for sure. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk more about you then. You're an evolutionary psychologist and now a media psychologist. <laughs> Apparently, uh, yeah. Maybe you'll maybe you'll do even more of of this kind of media experience. Um, but you're an evolutionary psychologist. So what sort of creature is that? Uh, evolutionary psychology, um, in my opinion, well, I guess I'm biased, and most people are about their discipline, but I think it's a very important uh, field of study, and I wish more people were, were aware of it. Um, evolutionary psychology, <laughs> excuse me, I got a bit of bronchitis here. Um, basically, uh, um, works under the presumption that, you know, evolution does not only create adaptations in terms of our bodies, in terms of organs and, and so on. It, it doesn't stop below the neck. It continues on up to the brain. And so our brains uh, have evolved to, to do the same things as our bodies. To, to survive and to reproduce and uh, you know pass on our 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 genes to the next generation and uh, most people are kind of unaware of that that um, you know evolution has created the brain and uh, the brain is the is the basis of behavior um, you know it, I, I think what I find a little frustrating uh, sometimes with my colleagues in psychology, is uh, if you ask most psychologists, why do organisms behave in the first place? Uh, they would kind of look at you probably a little gobsmacked, uh, dumbfounded <laughs> yeah. as to what are you talking about? Of course, organisms behave, but but that's a legitimate question. And uh, you know, we could ask the same question: <laughs> you know, why do organisms have bodies? Uh, uh, we could have stay, stayed as single-celled organisms and so on. But, um, you know, every psychologist, in my opinion, should understand, should be able to answer that question. Why do organisms behave in the first place? And the answer uh, provided by Darwin, who was the first evolutionary psychologist, uh, he said, uh, in the future, I see far more important researches uh, just like, you know, the body evolves, uh, mental faculties evolve as well, and uh, evolution will become uh, the new foundation for psychology. And um, and there's a long history there. There was one problem with Darwin's theory that Darwin himself recognized, and he was a honest guy, and he mentioned that... Uh, you know, one problem with his theory is that it could not explain the behavior or the existence of uh, the social caste system in social insect species that have a sterile caste of workers. Uh, ants, bees, termites have a group of individuals who never reproduce themselves and he realized that that um, was potentially fatal to his theory. Huh. And that would have been fatal indeed to his theory because evolution cannot explain or could not explain how that could have, you know, how a sterile cask could possibly evolve. And it wasn't until about 1963, 1964, that that question was finally answered by William Hamilton with his theory of inclusive fitness. And he argued that there's two ways that organisms can pass along their, their genes. They can reproduce directly. Or another way to do it is to reproduce indirectly. 
uh, through your through individuals who share your genes by helping those individuals, you're essentially helping your genes. So for example, you know, if I have two children, each of them has 50% of my genes. So I've essentially replicated myself uh, genetically with two children. But if I have a sister who has four children and I've helped her, uh, such that those children survive and reproduce where otherwise they wouldn't have. Um, you know, there's 25% of my genes in each one of those children, and that adds up to 100% as well. So I don't have to reproduce directly. I could reproduce indirectly. And uh, that's basically the answer to the social caste system, uh, the the sterile caste of, of the social insects. Now, when you they say caste, when you say caste, are, are you using the word that's spelled C-A-S-T-E? Yes, correct. Okay. That, you know, a group, almost like a little uh, subgroup within the species. And they are, you know, they never reproduce themselves, but they help the queen reproduce. So that's how that could possibly evolve. And, you know, if the creationists were aware of this, before Hamilton, they really could have had at it with Darwin's theory, but but apparently nobody uh, caught on to that. I just want to jot, jot down the name William Hamilton to make sure that I remember that. So I want to get yeah, any he's right. He's right up there here. with with Darwin. Okay. So I guess you know you know what I was saying here is is you ask most psychologists why do organisms behave. And they should be able to come back with a, with a quick answer. They behave in order to survive and reproduce and pass on their genes. And basically, the, the theory of inclusive fitness uh, describes that, that process under what conditions traits will, will evolve, adaptations will evolve. And, you know, I, again, it's a little frustrating for me that this is the case, I mean, it's almost as, as if you were at a, a social gathering and you came, you were introduced to a geologist and you happened to um, mention the theory of continental drift. And if they said, what? What are you talking about? If they didn't know <laughs> yeah. what continental drift was and you're studying earthquakes, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, that's that's a little unfortunate. But it's kind of the same way in psychology, in my opinion, uh, without an understanding of evolutionary theory and inclusive fitness theory, um, we really can't answer that question. No other psychologist can answer the question, why do organisms behave? Yeah, Period. now, does this, uh, this system of theories also account for altruism? I mean, I think this is one of yes. the things that, that people worried about, right? For a long yes, time. it 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 does account for altruism. Um, you know, we tend to be altruistic toward those who share our our genes, and we're, you know, we call it altruism, but actually, in, in a way, it's kind of we're looking out for our own interests, our own genetic interests, to pass along our genes. Um, so, I mean, ironically, altruism is built on a foundation of of selfishness genetic selfishness yeah uh, going back to this film the subtitle of the film is society morality and evolution so you have been talking about elevation evolution uh how can we work in society and morality into this okay. discussion <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, morality is, is a, from an evolutionary perspective, is, um, let's see, how can I say this? You know, from, from a purely scientific perspective, uh, what we refer to as morality, um, it has to do with what we think how we think things should be or, or what is just evolution is blind to justice. It, it doesn't, it doesn't see it, uh, justice. It, it only sees 
uh, inclusive fitness or reproductive success. And so what we refer to morality uh, is, is kind of a social contract that we've developed um, to try to influence the behavior of other people uh, to fundamentally have them respect our inclusive fitness, our, I mean, we would say it's immoral to kill someone. Um, and yeah, before, that's kind of, before sure. speaking, before speaking to you, I might have naively said, "Oh well, the purpose of morality is, is uh, it, it gives an evolutionary advantage. Uh, it leads to survival, but not always, right? That's that's the problem with that argument." Yeah, um, morality. Uh, Richard Alexander uh, wrote a book, um, "The Evolution of Morality," uh, a n number of decades ago. It's it's. It's quite a classic, but in the book, he he argued that that basically what we're referring morality evolves to 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 get us to manipulate other people. So, for example, what is moral from my perspective uh, might be quite different from from your perspective. Um, I say we say, oh well, killing is is immoral. Um, but from an evolutionary perspective, uh, morality it doesn't exist. It's just, I mean, there, there's causality. There's not morality. Morality is, is kind of this conceptual symbolic system that we use to manipulate other people. I mean, if, if evolution was moral, we would all, I mean, the only moral species on the planet are basically plants. You know, they don't. They don't kill anyone uh, and steal their their the nutrients. They they create their own nutrients from the soil and from photosynthesis. So they're pretty moral if you want to look at it from that perspective. Lions and and other carnivores are horrifically immoral from a from a human standpoint, but that's the way that they evolved. Uh, evolution again doesn't care about. Uh, you know, it, it can only see, it doesn't care about morality, it can only see uh, inclusive fitness. So, I mean, uh, for example, we say that killing is wrong. And yet at wartime, we, we call people who are basically killers, we draft them to into the army and we send them off to, to kill other people who are the members of the outgroup, another tribe. Um, and then we we celebrate them as heroes, right? Yeah, exactly. We give them medals and awards, and uh, you know, create statues and and whatnot. Um, and and one reason for for that is because, again, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we lived in tribes of maybe fifty to one hundred fifty people, and the the history of of our species is one of brutal tribal intertribal warfare. So, um, in no, order no, to no, no, many people imagine a, a sort of Eden-like, uh, you know, the noble savage, the Eden-like experience of hypothetically, and maybe it ex existed in some places and sometimes of uh, groups of people, tribal peoples, who lived in a, in a way that was in accord with, with nature rather, yeah. rather, than, rather than... And they were, you know, the yeah. noble savage. Right. They were peaceful people. Steven Pinker wrote a book called The Blank Slate where he actually looks into this. Um, and in general, we, we were pretty nice to each other if you were a member of my tribe basically there's something called tribal altruism or strong altruism or strong reciprocity sometimes it's called and basically the, the rule is this um, in terms of morality who are you going to be nice to you're going to be nice to yourself number one because you have 100 percent of your own genes you're looking out for number one 
You're going to be really nice to those who share your genes, such as your offspring, who are likely to reproduce themselves. You know, we're, we're nicer to our offspring that share 50% of our genes than we are to our grandparents who also share 50% of our genes because our grandparents are finished reproducing. There's nothing further that they can do to help us, but our children can. And then is, there's, a, there's an equation that Hamilton came up with, William Hamilton, which is basically E equals mc squared that we're familiar with in physics, but the closest that we come to that in evolutionary biology is uh, Hamilton's equation, which is C is less than RB. And that means altruism will occur, being nice will occur when the cost to you is less than the benefit to, excuse me, the recipient of your altruism times the genetic relationship. So, for example, if you came up to me and said, Mike, I will give your sibling who shares 50% of your genes a dollar if you give me a dollar. And if you if you plug that those numbers into that equation, the cost to me is a dollar, the benefit to my sibling is a dollar and our relationship is a genetic relationship is 0.5. And so you can see that the, you know, C is not less than RB in that case. One is not less than one times 0.5, which is 0.5. Um, and so if you came to me and said, instead, Mike, I will give you two dollars and one cent to your sibling who you share 50 percent of your genes with if you give me a dollar in that case i would do it at least according to theory the sad thing about this is that as the degree of genetic relationship decreases exponentially as it does the degree of altruism will also decrease exponentially. So we can pretty much predict who people are going to be nice to. First of all, you're going to be nice to yourself. Um, you've got 100% of your genes. You're going to be nice to your siblings and your offspring who share 50% of your genes. You're going to be nice to your um, cousins and so on. But as the degree of genetic relationship decreases, the degree of altruism will decrease. There's an old saying, Arab saying, uh, me against my brother, uh, me and my brother against my cousins, uh, me and my brother and my cousins against my tribe, and me and my cousins and my tribe against the other tribe. So we can talk about uh, inclusive fitness and uh, altruism toward kin. And even if we want to bring it up a level, even toward altruism toward the tribal members, which basically says, if you're a member of my tribe, I will give you the benefit of the doubt and I will be be nice to you other, more than, than you would expect. It turns out that probably most members of the tribe were distant cousins anyway. So that kind of works. And what's kind of interesting is, uh, you know, some we engage in uh, uh, activities that allow us to engage in tribal warfare and activate those psychological adaptations for the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat in, with sports. You know, you have people who root for this, the home team, your home yeah. tribe. And, uh, you know, you want to beat the other tribe who's, who's visiting or you're visiting their area. And the nice thing about sports is it allows us to execute these psychological adaptations. And it's kind of fun, you know, to engage in, in mock warfare. But nobody actually gets killed. 
and hopefully well, so, nobody. So, sometimes we have uh, <clears throat> we fantasized about putting our national leader, you know, against some other enemy national leader, and let them hash it out that way. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and along those lines, I don't know if you've heard this, but Mark uh, Elon Mark Zuckerberg who is trained in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, has supposedly challenged Elon Musk to a fight. And Elon, e Elon Musk reportedly has said, uh, you named the place, buddy. <laughs> you named the time and place. So some, you know, of us, some of us are maybe taking a little too much delight in this possibility. Yeah. Um, it would be kind of fun to watch. And, you know, we, we enjoy watching boxing matches, which are actually brutal displays of, yeah. of personal assault. I mean, let's, you know, watch somebody hit each, hit each other about the head until one of them falls unconscious. Um, you know, and, and, you know, right now with, with the war that that's going on, I, wouldn't it be great if instead of using real bullets, we played paintball instead and yeah. you could keep score, and somebody could win or lose the war based on the paintball conflict, but nobody actually gets killed. I I, I wish that that was an option, but I, I don't see it as, <laughs> as being a realistic option. Right, because it would have real consequences for people. You know, if, if they're on the losing side, they might lose resources. They might lose food, water, their right. lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean but but i mean that's the difference between real war where people where there's real bullets and sports which is simulated warfare um you know w without bullets yes um so are we still evolving as a species do you think evolution takes a really um long time it takes a lot of generations and it depends how strong the selection pressures are you know if even weak selection pressures can can result in evolutionary change over long periods of time if you want to see quick evolutionary change you have to have very strong selection pressures um and then evolution can occur in a matter of generations, uh, but that's pretty pretty rare. You know, my students often ask me, well, are we still evolving? And uh, yeah, the answer is, sure we are, but you're not gonna see it. Um, <laughs> you know, I've never seen, I, the problem with, with evolutionary psychology is that people understand how socialization works and they feel it. It feels good to be reinforced. It's not fun to be punished. And you can train your dog to roll over um, or use the doggy door and go potty outside, but you've never seen your dog evolve from a wolf. I've never seen a giraffe's neck get longer. So we tend to over overestimate the effect of culture and socialization, and we ignore evolve psychological adaptations because we, we we don't see it it just doesn't seem a salient to us yeah now you know there are huge pressures on us you talk about the pressures that force uh, uh, evolutionary change and certainly we're in a time where there are huge pressures that we're facing you know in terms of uh, uh, wars and conflicts, climate change, uh, water issues, etc. All of these are well known to you, I'm sure. Um, so some optimists among us, some spiritually oriented people, see this as, see us as evolving toward higher consciousness. What, what are your thoughts about that? Um. <clears throat> Well, essentially, you know, we're living in a technological age, but we still have Stone Age minds and brains. Um, and that could be a deadly combination. Uh, you know, nuclear war 
the technology allows for nuclear war and we have brains that that have no way to really that have not adapted to to that type of uh horror it, you know would just wipe out everybody um we engage in a lot of behaviors that are are very hard to i mean it would be nice if we could think about the planet and stop warfare but unfortunately that's not what we're designed to do um we're kind of like um you know the, the analogy is is the the frog in the pot and and the the water the heat is being heated up and eventually it starts to boil it happens so slowly that the frog doesn't doesn't recognize it and doesn't jump out of the pot with climate change that that's a real threat it's an existential threat but most people are far more focused on their daily lives and how to pay the mortgage how to put shoes on their kids feet than they are about um you know long-term effects we're, we're yeah. far more focused on short term we have got what's called a uh a high discount rate we discount the future you know the native american indians had a had a philosophy some of them that uh you should think about the effects of what you're doing seven generations down you know and we have a hard time thinking you know seven days away from from now or seven months from now the problem is we have no psychological adaptations to deal with slow unfolding problems like climate change. We have no psychological adaptations to deal with technological advances that our ancestors, you know, didn't face. I mean, one of the biggest threats right now, which just really came on the radar for most people in the last year or so is artificial intelligence. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And, uh, you know, that's that's an existential threat, but most people don't see it as such because it doesn't hurt. It, we can't smell it. We can't feel it. It's um, And the same thing with climate change, although it's getting a bit hotter. Uh, you know, once we artificial intelligence, as, as Ray Kurzweil points out in his, his book, The Singularity, and other people have pointed out, you know, once you get intelligent machines, artificial intelligence machine machines that can program themselves, can can program the next generation of AI to be smarter than the past generation. And once that takes off, it goes exponential. And pretty soon, AI is smarter than, than we are. And not just smarter than we are slowly but that happens very very rapidly and once it takes off it goes exponential and then the question is well <clears throat> what's ai going to do with you know us lumbering you know biological you know robots uh <laughs> a slow dumb ones huh slow dumb ones it's it's like they would probably care about as much uh, much about us as we care about ants on the kitchen sink um so i guess the answer that i would that an evolutionary psychologist would give to it would be great if our consciousness expanded and we could over we could transcend some of these limitations that we have you know, evolutionary psychology is, is not about morality in the way that you and I think about it. Um, it's about reality. But if there was a way for us to kind of fool ourselves into thinking that climate change is not just some sort of abstract problem, it's a problem of our own personal survival and that and the survival of our survival of our children, if if we could get uh if we could kind of transcend our psychological adaptations or re-engineer them or propagandize ourselves, uh, that, that could be a potential solution to these problems. But I, I don't personally hold off a lot of 
optimism, tell you the truth. You know, I just, the interview before this one <clears throat> is was with the, uh, <clears throat> with Dr. Tony Nader, who's both an MD and a psychologist and neuroscientist and so on. And he's also the head of trans, uh, Transcendental Meditation International. And um, so, and his teacher, the main guru that from whom he learned his Vedic wisdom, the Maharishi, Maharshi, I, I think it was Maharishi Maharsha Yogi, <laughs> um, believed that if you got a thousand people together and you train them in the mental techniques of transcendental meditation, which is not a religion, but really a set of mental, if you will, exercises and so on, uh, that if you got a thousand of them, the, them in a community, let's say, that uh, this kinds of social problems that were largely plagued with would go away. So there's an alternate. Uh, yeah. And, and he starts really with consciousness. The, the uh, title of his book is, has to do with unbounded, uh, the unbounded ocean of consciousness in which we're, we're all swimming. So, so if you start with consciousness as the primal thing, the primal bit, rather than material as the primal bit, um, then there's a way in which perhaps that, that becomes possible to, to imagine. Yeah, I, I hope he's right. Um, uh, evolutionary psychology wouldn't have much to say about that. You know, the question is, can we transcend our kind of primitive psychological adaptations? And to some extent, I think that we can. Um, but you have to put a lot of cultural pressure on it. The, the way that I think about human nature, it's kind of like um, memory foam or molded rubber. You know, it comes in a particular shape. And you can deform that shape. You know, with molded rubber, you could apply pressure and bend it or, or whatever. But it's... If you, if you remove the pressure, it's going to gradually come back to the original shape, kind of come back to our human nature. There are examples, cultural examples, of some groups that completely went against our evolved psychological adaptations. Um, the Shakers... Uh, this, you know, the religious sect did not believe in sex, period. Not premarital sex or infidelity. Or just They just didn't believe in sex. The problem is that there's no more shakers left. I think the last one died a decade or two ago. Uh, because how do you create shakers? You, you create little <laughs> shakers. Yeah, right. There was a similar uh, group in, in Russia that... Um, is is now extinct. So, culture can apply some some pretty intense pressure, but it has to be continuous. Otherwise, human nature will kind of bounce back to its original state. You know, right now, um, we're kind of in a really interesting cultural period um, with respect to to uh, gender ideology and the idea that that gender is fluid and that people can choose their gender or identify as whatever they want to be you know one of 86 or 92 genders whatever um and uh, that really goes against basic biology uh in terms of sex at the the most fundamental level of, of gametes is indeed binary. And then after that point, 
at higher levels of, uh, you know, brain differences and whatnot, it, it becomes pretty um, bimodal. But um, I mean, that's an example of kind of cultural pressure working against kind of basic fundamentals of, of human nature. Well, one, and, of the place, one of the places in, in the film presentation uh, that uh, your voice was used for the, that I got excited by and, and kind of woke up to was your discussion of memes and uh, the, uh, the idea that ideas have a life of their own that culture has a life of, of its own that that transcends the um, the group perhaps that that generates those so maybe we can try to talk about that a bit yeah memes uh the term when, we, when most people hear the word word meme they, they think of some sort of graphic on the internet with a with a phrase on it yeah uh, but uh, the way there's the way evolutionary biologists think about memes, and there's an entire entire field called memetics. The Richard Dawkins pointed out that um, you know genes are replicators, and uh, you know that's the foundation for all of biology. But he argued in his book, The Selfish Gene, in uh, the last chapter of that book, and uh, the original edition he added a chapter since that um a new replicator has evolved on the planet and that is a meme and a meme memes are replicators that exist in brains instead of genes hopping from body to body memes are ideas or any bit of information that can be copied from brain to brain so a good example of a meme is is anything that can be copied from brain to brain. Um, you know, uh, you know, music. Music is a meme. You know, dun 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 dun. I mean, that's something that that anybody knows uh, can recognize. So, Susan Blackmore wrote a book on memetics and she came up with a very radical idea that memes have taken on a life of their own and that the reason our brains are so big, they're far bigger than they need to be to be a hunter gatherer is because they're in service, not only of genes, but they're also in service of memes. I don't know what kind of mechanism that could, how that could occur, how memes could affect genes. And there's a whole bunch of research and books written about uh, meme gene coevolution. My own perspective on this <clears throat> is that memes have to exist in a certain ecology in order to replicate. They, they exist in ecology of brains and genes. So I don't think memes are completely independent they could go pretty independent for a short term, but in the long term, like with the molded rubber analogy, they kind of, you know, they have to adapt to what genes are doing. And then Susan Blackmore in a, in a really fascinating, one of the best lectures I, I think I've ever heard. Uh, people can watch it on, on YouTube. It was originally a Ted talk. If you look for the name to a search for Susan Blackmore at, at Ted, um, and her talk is about genes, memes, and what she calls teams. Teams? Memes, teams? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah, technological memes. And what she's arguing is that the first replicator on the planet w w was genes, and they created biology. The second replicator are memes that hop from brain to brain, and that creates culture. And the third replicator she says it just evolved are teams technological memes that exist not in brains and don't hop from brain to brain but hop from computer to computer and that's where we are right now with respect to ai 
And she argues that um, this, you know, teams are going to um, probably take over because of, of the extremely rapid evolution. So we've got this third replicator on the planet now. And uh, what will happen in the next 20, 30 years with Tometic evolution is um, is kind of scary. I don't I don't know what's what's going to happen. Right, <laughs> and evident, and uh, some people think they know, and others, like me, <laughs> will admit and me. That, that, that we don't know. We don't we don't have all the answers. Well, you've you've really. Uh, favored us with a lot of exciting ideas here just in a short period of time. And uh, it would be wonderful to take a course with you. And I know you're also a professor. And um, but I also hear that you're struggling with uh, with uh, with a cough. And uh, so I want to let you go and, and, and show some mercy here. So uh, Dr. Michael Mills. Thanks for being my guest tonight on Shrink Wrap Radio. Hey, my pleasure, David. Happy to do it again anytime. My recent guest, evolutionary psychologist Michael Mills, PhD, proves to be a thought-provoking interviewee. However, we did have to overcome some obstacles. First of all, on the morning scheduled for our meeting, he sent me a last-minute email letting me know something had come up such that we would have to reschedule for later in the week. Rescheduling to the end of the week doesn't work for me because I'm doing these interviews weekly, and I need time to put the interview together into a YouTube format and a podcast format, and that typically takes me at least a day or two. Plus, I need to get ready for the next interview, for example, reading their book and formulating my questions. So it's already a time crunch. I called Mike to get a sense of what was behind his request to reschedule and to see if there might be some flexibility on his end. Turns out he had just come down with a bad cold, and that was producing a lot of coughing and making it difficult to speak. Nonetheless, I pushed to see if maybe we could go ahead and do it that evening. He agreed to give it a try. When we spoke later that evening, I felt guilty for twisting his arm because I could see and hear he was really suffering. Plus, I had put additional stress on myself because I'm a morning person and had never attempted an evening interview. I was able to record our voices on separate tracks and spend considerable time the next morning editing out his coughs. The other thing that caught me by surprise early in the interview was that he was not a producer of the documentary we were going to discuss and that his voiceovers were spliced in from a conversation he had with the actual producer. They did a good enough job that I wasn't aware that his comments weren't made while watching the film. So our interview was less about the documentary per se and more about the field of evolutionary psychology. I came away from our conversation with a greater awareness and appreciation for the tools of evolutionary psychology and the important lens they provide. Our conversation ranged over such topics and personalities as Darwin, evolution, evolutionary psychology, William Hamilton, Richard Dawkins, Susan Blackmore, memes, psychomimetics, artificial intelligence, AI, sterile caste, theory of inclusive fitness, genes, altruism, morality, Richard Alexander, tribe, selection pressures, the singularity, and replicators. I listened with intrigue as my guest, Michael Mills, Ph.D., 
took me through the thought-provoking ideas and history embedded in each of these terms and individuals. By the way, I do recommend you rent yourself a copy of the documentary Ticket to Ride, Society, Morality, and Evolution. You can rent it on Amazon for U.S. $1.99. Hey, Dr. Dave, it's Mike the Mailman from beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. And I just wanted to take an opportunity and thank you for all the hard work that you put into these podcasts at Shrinkwrap Radio. And to give you that good shot in the arm, I have become a monthly donor. And I would encourage other listeners to go to the webpage and hit that big multiple color donate button and give you that great shot in the arm. So again, Dr. Dave, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike the Mailman, there in beautiful Ashland, North Carolina, for the energizing shot in the arm of your donation and encouragement of others doing likewise. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, environmental psychologist Michael Mills, Ph.D., for introducing us to the nuances of the evolutionary perspective and the environmental documentary Ticket to Ride, Society, Morality, and Evolution. Next week will feature me being interviewed about my psychological and podcasting career by another podcasting psychologist, Dr. Kirk Honda, host of the very successful Psychology in Seattle podcast. Maybe you will learn some new things about yours truly. At least I hope so. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.